0: Welcome to Corona Cartoons. Me, your host as always, Brian Dressel. With me this week, we have Chewie Darso. Hello. And Ray Deslich. Hello. Hello to all. Yes. Uh, Hope everyone's still having fun in their uh, quarantined whatever domicile you're in uh, as much as you can. Because, you know, fun is in short supply right now. So that's why we're doing our show of fun cartoons. Because things might be grim. So let's, you know, take our minds off that. I loved last week. Last week was a lot of fun. We got to talk Doug and Angry Beavers. If you did not check that one out, I highly recommend it. Both
1: of which I've never watched.
0: Yeah, I tried watching those with Chewy. She she wasn't much of a fan.
1: Well, I didn't even try with Angry Beavers. I think I left the room. Yeah. I tried watching some Doug, and I'm like, hmm. (laughs)
0: Huh. That's a show. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get it. Uh, I loved it, but I get it.
1: (laughs) When you weren't raised in Nickelodeon, the nostalgia for these things is non-existent. Yeah, no, I I get that.
0: Um, But speaking of nostalgia, uh, this week, uh, Johnny had mentioned that Ray was interested in doing this show, but she wasn't really into animation. And I'm like, well, kind of meet me halfway. Give me something animated, and I am happy to talk to anyone about anything right now. He's like, oh, she likes Roger (laughs) Rabbit. And I'm like, well, fucking sold. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. So now we have Ray here to talk with us about... Roger, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I can get the whole name in there.
2: That's right. Uh, Yeah, and it's a great nostalgia pick for so many reasons. For me personally, um, I was, uh, so Who Framed Roger Rabbit was the only VHS film that my family owned growing up. We had two um, VHS tapes, and one was like an instructional video, and the other one was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, so that's honestly probably the movie I've seen the most in my life is this movie, um, and then also you know it's it's a it's nostalgia for all of us for the 80s you know and for movies that we used to watch as kids, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit itself is like one big like nostalgia love letter to like old you know 1940s Los Angeles. So it's like nostalgia upon nostalgia upon nostalgia.
0: Oh, yeah, and then just the biggest love letter to Warner Brothers and Disney at the same time in one movie, which is still oh, just sure. mind-blowing today.
2: Yeah, and to yeah. classic animation, um, an homage to the golden age of animation. Um, yeah.
1: it's just a, was a fun time when everyone was still kind of working together industry-wise. Before, yeah. Like, yeah. Before Disney was like, you know what, we just want to buy everybody. We don't want to work with anyone.
0: I mean, I, Warner Brothers won't play ball right now.
1: No, not at all. It was a different time. <laughs> I
2: actually, um, so guys, I did a lot of research for this for this podcast because I mm. wanted to. Also, so I discovered that um, when I was looking into filming locations, uh, a lot of them were in England because something like seventy percent of the even physical uh, shooting took place in England, and that was mm. because um, the head animator uh, got brought on under the condition that they could work in England because they didn't want to work near the Disney bureaucracy Um, nice because
1: (laughs) just leave the country right
2: yeah that they didn't want to basically you know like work in Burbank pretty much under the thumb of the mouse um, because I think this was a Disney financed or Disney backed movie Um, I think they both chipped in yeah uh, plus, of course, everyone, you know, licensing their characters. Um, yeah. And so, you know, even though it's set in like the era of the, you know, the studio age, um, it was being produced by like, you know, auteur uh, animators who kind of wanted to like do their own independent thing and not have like the thumb of big studio over them, uh, which is funny because it's a movie about, you know, the grand studio era of Hollywood.
0: Oh, featuring some of the biggest characters ever.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> but,
0: that's that's kind of insane.
1: But the nostalgia for I mean, there's so much good material that came out of the studio era. Even though when you think about the politics of it, it was terrible. Yeah, so yeah. Celebrate the good and run away from the bad. <laughs> yeah.
2: But well, I think this movie shows a lot of the bad things about the studio era. Um, you know, at least some of them, anyway. Uh, Honestly, I think. Controlling that talent's definitely in there. Certainly, oh, yeah. yeah. And how people were signed to particular people and how there was kind of like underhanded, um, you know, cutthroat business as far as getting, you know, talent to do various things. Um, honestly, I think that if I were to start trying to explain the studio era of Hollywood to somebody, like, first, I would show them who framed Roger Rabbit. And then I would be like, okay, so a studio head, which is basically like RK Maroon, like, mm-hmm. I, I would use it as like a almost like a stereotype template for somebody to understand the entirety of the golden age of Hollywood upon.
0: Yeah, and I, you wouldn't be wrong at all. Like It, it really does showcase it.
1: Yeah. Mm. It's kind of nuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Usually when I try to explain it to people, I like to go down the rabbit hole of how they tried to prevent... Judy Garland from going into puberty.
2: (laughs) That's, I I don't think I know that one.
1: Ooh, look that up. It's one of the reasons why she was an addict. (laughs)
2: Mm, mm
0: -hmm. Fun. There were good times. There were fucking bad times. Yeah. I have no idea where to go after that.
1: I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's oh, one well, of the bleakest parts of the story of the studio era. Yeah, it definitely is. Wait, okay. <laughs> no,
2: I have somewhere to go after that. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, speaking of like Roger Rabbit as essentially um, a movie made by Hollywood about the studio era, um, it's also very much a film noir, um, you oh. know, which were produced by. Hollywood in the studio era, uh, and even some movies produced by Hollywood in the studio era, like, are set in it. You know, they deal with uh, with fame and you know, private detectives, and movie studio finagling and moguls and things like that. Um, Roger Rabbit shares so many like plot characteristics and thematic characteristics with film noirs, um, things like. You know, an incredibly convoluted plot uh, involving like real estate and companies and landholdings. I mean, it's basically goofy Chinatown, right? Um, oh, it's
0: totally like I've always thought this yeah. movie was just kind of Chinatown for kids, but not, also definitely the, not for kids.
1: The detective <laughs> with a ven- with a past and the femme exactly. Uh, oh yeah, misunderstood. Yeah, it's all there,
2: right? That's a big uh, characteristic of film noirs. Is, is there's uh, you know there's like the bad woman who's actually good. Um, there's usually a good woman who's actually bad, but I don't think there's one of those in this movie. There's themes of blackmail, uh, city corruption, um, unemployment, uh, the remnants and aftermath of prohibition, um, even like disability. Like if you notice, there's a, um, there's a very prominent, uh, serviceman who's missing an arm. And so like, it it very strongly establishes that like, this is immediately post-World War II. This guy's a veteran, he's still wearing his veteran jacket. Um, Judge Doom like hazes him by like using his sleeve to erase a chalkboard. Um, But you know, it very strongly sets it in this like, all of the servicemen have come back to war, some of them are now disabled, and a lot of them are unemployed.
1: And then Betty Boop is Betty Bo- that unemployment thing right oh, yeah.
2: the changing of industries putting people out of work um laid off red car drivers or red car operators yeah there's a lot of there's actually even a uh, there's a maltese falcon in eddie valiant's office um just to there is. completely you know just tie the knot between classic film noir movies and you know this very very goofy mostly daylight set film noir
1: I've never seen that movie so I would never really cling to that I suppose I should see that movie
0: I've seen it once a long time ago um, but I had to look it up as soon as I looked it up I knew exactly what she was talking about oh yeah that's in there
1: (laughs) you should watch both let's watch the Dennis Quaid remake
0: (laughs) (laughs) sure why not
2: totally (laughs)
1: A remake with Dennis uh, Quaid in it. How can you fail?
0: So, back to Roger Rabbit before we do any more Dennis Quaid. Cause I'm just,
1: <laughs> Brian doesn't really like Dennis not, Quaid. Not a big Dennis Quaid fan. <laughs>
0: no, people get really mad at me about that sometimes. And I'm like, why? I'm sorry? Um, Roger Rabbit. Uh, part of the reason I've always loved this movie uh, is because it has kind of something for everybody it, in the blandest of terms like it really is kind of a kids movie kind of a pitch black noir sort of thing and well I guess not pitch black it's not that much murder but it is just kind of this big mishmash of everything the reason that I always loved it was because when I was a kid I could attach myself to it like oh it's this kind of edgy movie that my parents let me watch because it has Disney characters in it and that sort of stuff but it's also kind of not so I loved it for that and then as I grew older I'm like oh I actually like the private eye detective story a whole mm-hmm. bunch more than I like the more kid stuff. But then as I kind of became a parent, now I'm like, oh, I just like it all together. It's just the best yeah. pie. But it's been able to, like I've been able to grow and change with it, which I think is really impressive for a movie.
1: When I was a yeah. kid, I definitely attached to the manicness of it. Like, I mm-hmm. wasn't able to keep track of the plot very well. And this movie came out when I was five. Yeah. I mean, Ray had it right. It's very overcomplicated. <laughs> yeah.
2: Though. Yeah. Uh, and it's, but there's a lot of slapstick comedy that kids love. There's, yeah. you know really very basic like verbal jokes there's visual jokes um i mean that <clears throat> pardon me that's why it served that function so well in my family cuz we did not have a lot of money so we just didn't own any movies except for that one so like we would put it on and like my sister and i would enjoy it from probably like age 5 onwards my parents would enjoy it because there's like sexy parts and then there's like adult jokes and uh, there's thinky parts um, where you realize like, oh, my God, there's a real estate scandal uh, in it, <laughs> it. It really does have jokes and on it has jokes on multiple levels and it has you know, plot things happening on multiple levels. If you're a kid, you can understand it on a very basic way of like, oh, now the weasels are chasing Roger. Um, And if you're an adult, you can understand it. Right. And if you're an adult, you're like, oh my God, like will drama. (laughs) That's serious (laughs) stuff.
1: (laughs) And just, and definitely something I didn't appreciate until living here was all the stuff about traffic. Oh, yeah. About the public transport. Uh, uh, Absolutely. Can't the red I, car. Yeah, just why can't you think of the transportation? Transportation, uh, and how it was the best in the world at the time? And then you know, freeways. Those are crazy. No one ever wants that.
0: I love Christopher <laughs> Lloyd's line: the, there'll never be traffic again."
1: Oh, yes, oh. there will. Oh,
0: Christopher Lloyd.
1: You were the right. Doc. You were right about all of it except for that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the movie kind of overstates um, the simplicity of what was going on at the time. Uh, what transit lines were doing at the time was actually converting to buses and buses were kind of working out better, uh, for the way that this streetscape of Los Angeles was evolving. Um,
0: that makes sense. And,
2: and also because of the weird way that Pacific Electric, the company that owns the red car was structured weirdly their red car service was like kind of a loss leader a part of their business that made them very widespread but didn't make them a lot of money they made most of their money in Mm. developing their vast real estate holdings that they bought in the early 1900s and also generating electricity um and they uh there was an antitrust thing in the 30s where they had to sell off their electricity business and then Um, they had developed and sold most of their real estate by that point. So uh, all of the streetcars were actually kind of running into logistical problems. And um, what is clear is that some tire companies, uh, Standard Oil, a bunch of petroleum companies, definitely engaged in conspiracy to take advantage of the situation But it was kind of a situation that was already happening. Um, For example, with the increase of car traffic on surface streets, the trolleys had to slow down. And so trolley service became less fast and less efficient because they had to share the road with cars. Uh, And it something like halved their uh, street speed. Because, unlike, you know, when we think of all of our light rail systems these days, like the L, the subway, Los Angeles the subway, they're not street level because yeah, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the streetcars were all street level. And so all of a sudden they had to like fight the increase in car traffic. And that was actually hurting the way that they had previously functioned. There, I mean, there's a whole, there's a huge list of things that affected the decline of various streetcar systems, like everything from fixed fares in a time of inflation, to um, uh, the fact that a lot of cities repaved their roads so that driving a car on them became more comfortable, whereas previously driving a streetcar on rails was more comfortable. Um, But I mean, there was a court case where seven companies were convicted of conspiring to take advantage of the situation. Uh, Those being like GM, Standard Oil, petroleum companies that sort of thing um so it's it's like a situation that they want to would have run into anyway another big problem was they were private companies these weren't public utilities even though they served the public and so you know the government couldn't really defend them the way that you can defend like our municipal water districts this is also probably getting more depressing and like boring than you want <laughs> it's not very tearful and nostalgic
1: It's not like the conductor going, what do you think, I'm a bank? Or do I look like a bank?
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: No, it's definitely not that. But I can also see why Roger Rabbit did not include all of that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. expect the adults to still kind of remember it, maybe. Maybe. The, like, 70-year-old adults. Yeah. In 88.
0: No, but it makes sense. I mean, I I like that Roger Rabbit, like, that they thought to at least take on part of it is kind of interesting.
1: Yeah. Like, they Mm -hmm. still
0: used a chunk of it to tell their story, which was... Especially the way that they did it of, like, well, Toontown's in the way. So I'm just going to take this dip and just erase Toontown in, like, ten minutes. i mm-hmm. just spray this shit everywhere. They're gone, and they'll just to sell off their land to the freeway.
2: Yeah. Absolutely a thing that happened to a lot of neighborhoods uh, in American cities when they started building freeways through them.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, Except- I've seen photos of, like, holdout people. When it comes to freeways or highways, oh, and sure. their houses just surrounded by oh, yeah. roads. It's kind of amazing.
2: Yeah.
0: It's like um, hero level stubbornness. Well,
1: they 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 all eventually get bulldozed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not all of them get to pull up in the air with balloons.
0: Um, but totally changing gears, just as violently as possible. Yes. Uh, Roger Rabbit was always one of my absolute favorite characters and this is really the only thing he's in.
1: Yeah, it was he was an original character, wasn't yep. he?
0: Well, for the um, I've never read the book. Ray, did you read the book?
2: No, I haven't no, read the book.
0: A... Um, I've never even looked the book up. I just know that in the credits it says based on a book. Oh. So, um I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm learning that yeah, now. Yeah,
1: it's... it's based on a book. So I'm not yeah. sure if Roger Rabbit
0: comes from that or from the movie or from whenever, but I think it's just for this story. He's not like a, a Warner Brothers character or a Disney character, which makes sense if you can have both of them in this world yeah. to not give either one of them the edge and make him one of their characters. Um,
2: the book is about him. It's called something like um, Who Set Up Roger Rabbit or something like that. It's uh, got a very similar title, not exactly the same. Hmm.
0: But yeah, so I've been for a long time I was just obsessed and like not obsessed in a way where obviously I did any research on him. So, you know, I can't say I'm the (laughs) biggest fan in the world, but I've always just loved his character. And I've always been just fascinated, especially by two things. Um, One, I love that he always kind of seems not like the happiest guy in the world, but he is dead set that he is supposed to bring other people laughter. I think that's really (laughs) kind of fascinating. Um, And two, it's when Betty Boop is talking to, how am I bringing his name? In? Oh, Bob Hoskins' character, um, Eddie Valiant. Eddie, yeah. When she's talking to Eddie, and he's like, "She's married to him." Yeah, lucky girl. I'm like, wait, more than one person would be into this guy?
1: Well, he's very like you were saying. His he might not be the happiest, but he wants to make other people happy. That's so true. That's yeah. He's sort of the, in a lot of partnerships.
2: The the caricature of like a sad sack comic, right? Is a guy yeah. who's like. My life is so sad. Isn't that so funny? Cheer up, folks! Like, let's laugh about it. Uh, I think that's a, I think that's a tone that a lot of modern comedians strike. Is like the the sad sack funny guy.
0: Oh, for sure. But he does it with just like this. He's you can tell he's not an unhappy guy. Like, mm-hmm. except for the fact that he's being framed for murder. But otherwise, <laughs> he loves his job. He loves his wife. Like, he has a really good life. Mm-hmm. But his whole yeah, stick is being. Sad Sack.
2: <laughs> but he's very sweet. He's very relatable. He's a, uh, you know, he's he's an every dude.
1: He's got a good work ethic.
0: Yeah. That's true. You just can't make stars on command. And Poor he's guy. obviously
1: not <laughs> controlling. I mean, if he's yeah. married to Jessica Rabbit and she gets to perform in like boudoir style settings, mm-hmm. almost cabarets, he he wasn't concerned until they took those photos.
2: Mhm.
0: Yeah. And he he even looked at the photos and said, "I don't believe them."
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. And Absolutely. then said, "She has a reason." Yeah. <laughs> so never even really
0: doubted her. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good dude. <laughs> yeah, they
2: they they love each other very much. They uh, they always look to protect each other. Um, they're a great couple.
1: And if we're gonna talk about Jessica Rabbit. I don't understand why Kathleen Turner was uncredited.
0: Right? I meant to look that up after you mentioned that. I'm like, wait, what?
1: It's definitely she's true. She's not in the I... credits. Mm-hmm. I and I had to look sure on IMDb, to... and she's listed on the bottom at IMDb saying uncredited.
2: Which is crazy, because that's, like, one of the most memorable, like, vocal performances for a uh, cartoon character. Yeah. Not – she, she oh, yeah. didn't I mean, sing the song. There was a, a singer that performed that. But, I mean, that's – if anybody does a line from a cartoon character, like, you know, one time out of five, it'll be Jessica Rabbit. And how do you just, like, make that stamp on culture without getting a credit?
1: <laughs> there must have been, uh, like, like- <sighs> something in – contracts or i don't know because she's the only one that's not credited everyone else gets credited
0: it's so weird like yeah i should have looked it up because i don't understand it because she's the thing is the design of the character is one thing like the design of the character is already eye-catching whatever she's very very picturesque
1: kathleen at that time turner was considered a bombshell
0: no but what (laughs) i'm saying is like the jessica rabbit was already going to be oh wow look jessica rabbit but without kathleen turner making the character what she was like it it wouldn't have stuck around like it did like she definitely deserved
2: Mm-hmm.
0: the and mention other, I'm just very curious why it didn't happen
2: other actors are credited for their voice performances the guy who plays Roger Rabbit is credited the guy who plays Baby Herman is credited mm-hmm. I think uh, Mel
0: Blanc is all over the, bo- the back credits absolutely yeah, yeah. Um,
2: I don't know it's I've been like I said I've been doing a little bit of research for this podcast and the answer is not forthcoming I'll tell you that um, mm-hmm. it's not something real obvious that everyone knows um, because it's not, you know, it's it doesn't come up in like a surface amount of research. Uh, so whatever it is, it's still kind of a secret, I guess.
0: Hey, we should all just start tweeting at Robert Zemeckis.
2: <laughs>
0: I,
1: I, hey. Say it, yeah, I asked Kathleen, but she doesn't really do much as much anymore. No, so we got <laughs> here but, and there, but.
0: But Zemeckis does stuff all the time. Yeah. Start tweeting him. Hey, I've worked hey, it with wasn't Kathleen, Kathleen Turner. Turner credited actually, in Roger she
1: was a
2: delight. I worked with her on an indie movie. Um, oh, yeah? Ages ago. Yeah. Uh, and she's funny and sassy and, you know, kind of a little bit uh, a little bit snappy. Um, but she's wonderful, you know? She knows what she's doing, and she'll tell you. That's good. So
0: now you need to hop in a time machine, go back to when you worked with her, and ask her the question.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Why We're going to become Roger Rabbit <laughs>
2: truthers, guys.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been just going down a rabbit hole of nostalgia movies from the '80s, and she's been popping up a ton. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, she was rewatch "Jewel of the Nile" and I can't remember the name of the first one right now. "Romancing the Stone."
2: Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, Yeah,
1: her career was on fire in the
2: '80s.
0: But she's also like, she makes Jessica Rabbit what she is. Like, it's not like the as much as the. As I was saying earlier, as much of the design was great. Without her... Yeah.
1: The performance... Absolutely. The, her character the voice hinges on her vocal performance for yeah. likability. Mm-hmm.
0: Like, uh, if you go back and listen to all the Venture Bros episodes when that was still our show, uh, I'm very into voice performances. Like, that's... Like, we even did an entire, like, season of our favorite voice actors... And that's one of the things in this movie is everyone, all the voice actors. I mean, they got most of the originals back for the famous characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody else, like, the voice characters are so good throughout the entire thing. Like They just make these characters come alive. Mm-hmm. And it's so fucking cool. Between her and I always forget the guy's name who voiced Roger Rabbit.
1: Charles Fleischer. That's, that's
0: right. right. Yeah. Yes.
1: Charles Fleischer played Roger Rabbit. And the taxi cab and a couple other things. But that makes sense.
0: Yeah. You look at like anything animated, they always kind of double up on a few
1: yeah
2: Yeah, and a lot of these voice actors were the classic actor who played that role i suppose and so you you see in the credits there's a lot of repeats and you know like mel blanc and a couple of other classic animation voice actors uh those are the roles that they originated um you know because of course voice actors can do a lot of different roles uh and you know that just shows how much they went to you know pull back all of the uh the original actors and try to go for as much authenticity as possible, which is great. Well,
0: and that just meant so much when we get into those scenes, like where they start pairing up the Disney and the Warner Brothers characters. Mm -hmm. By having that level of like love and attention and getting the right people to voice these roles, those scenes where Daffy Duck and Donald Duck are having a dueling piano show would not be the magic that it is Mm -hmm. if we didn't have that attention to detail. Like that is one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever made,
1: like Absolutely. that is
0: as high up there as you can get. It is just pure genius, and it's like this is exactly what would happen if this were to happen. Like this makes you nailed it.
1: So yeah. I even like the part when Bob is or uh, Eddie is falling, and he runs into Mickey. Oh and my god!
2: And Fun bugs. fact: that is the first time that Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny have appeared on film together. Because it of makes, course, and one is a Disney character and one is a Warner character. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and they're, like, polar opposites of, like, yeah. likability. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Because Mickey's squeaky clean, you know, the good guy that always got your back. And Bug's Bunny, ain't I a stinker? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> he'll, he'll screw you over and he'll be charming Gives about it. Gives
0: him a spare tire and lets him fall to his death. And Mickey <laughs> yeah. has to go, oh poor fellow.
2: <laughs> and I think that's
0: goddamn genius.
2: what makes a movie uh, an homage rather than a parody is the love for the source material that, you know, if you were to make, uh, this is essentially a dirty cartoon movie, right? So if you were to make a dirty cartoon movie that did not have involvement of the original animators and voice actors, and it didn't try as best as possible to bring all those characters back, um, then it would just look like someone doing, you know, a scary movie essentially it would be like a knockoff or it would be like it would um, be
1: like that johnny depp not johnny depp brad pitt movie cool world, <clears throat> cool world oh, yeah. which was not great
2: <laughs> cool world is I, fun we and weird it. in its own way um it is yeah. <laughs> but it,
1: the nostalgia it, for it and the like Sincerity and all that—that's in this movie—is not really there for that,
2: right? That's and that's I do feel bad for both of the movies because you
0: can't talk about one without having to bring up the other at some point or another.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like Cool World is a little bit different. Cool World is like, like if you cracked open like an old weird animator's mind, because like all artists are a little bit weirder than the art they create usually or the art they sell. Sure. Uh, that's what Cool World is. Cool World is like. If you asked some fucking weirdo animator, like, what's the movie you'd really love to make? Or like, what goes on in your brain while you're asleep? Then that's what you would find in there. And then Who Framed Roger Rabbit is like the the art that they would create to sell for consumption for other people. <laughs> it's kind like of, made yeah, by the same person, but it's like publicly uh, available, like publicly acceptable creations versus like the weird private thoughts that you keep inside
1: because with disney uh pinocchio becomes a real boy because of a beautiful fairy just kind of makes him a real boy Mm. cool world you gotta have sex with her (laughs) (laughs) then she's a real girl like i'm saying it's it's (laughs) sort of weird
2: shit that you would like (laughs) the weird thoughts that you would find kicking around in in someone's head Probably some, like, mangy old animator who had spent too long inhaling paint fumes.
0: (laughs) All of that tracks. (laughs) (laughs) One thing we really haven't talked about at all with Roger Rabbit in the... And it's the scene that, like, for the longest time... Like, I think when I finally took, like, that longest break between watching a shitload as a kid, obviously not as much as Ray, but uh, a whole bunch as a kid, and then again, a whole bunch as an adult, I totally forgot that they ever went to Toon World. Mm Mm-hmm. Or Toontown, sorry. Oh
1: yeah? I, yeah. For some
0: reason, like I remember the cartoon gun. I remember all. Uh, I love, like, just briefly touching on it, like that. How he has a cartoon gun every now and then. The cartoon people have real guns. I just, I love that mix. Sorry, moving on. That's probably um,
2: the darkest part of the movie too. Um, Plot-wise, the darkest part of the movie is the Toontown part of yeah. it, which is funny because you would think the parts set in real Hollywood would be the darkest part, but. Um, in like classic dramatic structure that comes, you know, right before the end. And so that's supposed to be the, the, the nemesis, the point of um, where you're at your, your darkest, where you're about to fail, Um, you know, and then he goes to, then they go to the factory, of course, and things become even more dire. And then, then we have the, the satisfying resolution, but like everything is kind of fucked up in Toontown. Like, the car crashes.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, there's no physics. The lady...
2: Yeah. Physics are insane. He's about to fall to his death and die. Yeah. The lady that he sees through the keyhole is not a beautiful lady. Um, It is very interesting that the segment of the movie in Toontown is, like, thematically the darkest part.
0: (laughs) That is kind of weird, but you're not wrong. Like, every as soon as he gets to toontown things suck
1: well i think it has a lot of reflections to almost like race relations because there's several times in the movie where they talk about things aren't good for tunes right now how could a tune get a fair trial and stuff like that throughout the film so then when we get to toontown he's completely at the mercy of a different culture yeah and his his laws of physics don't apply to their laws of physics and you, he can't really win in that environment, which is why they have to go back to the other side in the factory where he's still fighting toons, but the physics is on his side.
2: Ah, yes. Yeah, that's true. And also, his brother was killed in that fateful job in Toontown. Yeah. Uh, so it, it does represent the darkest point in his life. We are supposed to. Because well, he mentions earlier in the going... film
0: he hadn't been back to Toontown since his brother died, yeah. right? Mm hmm.
2: Yeah, so, so it's yeah, this great contrast where so Toontown is like the phys- the brightest and most colorful part of the movie and the brightest and most colorful part of town, but it represents like all of the darkest things. His brother's death, <laughs> Eddie's depression, um, the fact that it's like a metaphor for being an ethnic ghetto, um, his, his brush with death, all of those things happen in the visually brightest part of the movie. A it's place an interesting... with
1: dancing happy trees. Yeah, and the Absolutely. sun that smiles gives you like, a thumbs up. Birds that say hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad trip, man. <laughs> I love
2: it. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> it's a good dramatic juxtaposition to have all those terrible things happening in, like, happy, funny Cartoon Town.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Just think about that the next time you're at Toontown in Disney, that that's the darkest part.
0: Yeah, whenever Disney opens again.
1: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>
0: there was something I was going to try to move into right after Toontown. I don't remember what it was.
1: The, I mean, Judge Doom? Oh, and how, yeah. Should you ever trust anyone who's named Judge Doom? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, that's the bleak name. And they don't really, like, they don't spend a lot of time on defining his job beyond saying he's a judge.
1: He's like Judge Dredd. That's what I take it as. Because he just gets to kill people in front of everybody else without actually having a trial.
0: Yeah, and then I was like, wait, is it just tunes? And they're just like, well, whatever, they're tunes. We don't really care because they're drawn. I
1: don't know.
0: There's a lot of just like, we're just going to brush over this with the Judge character. (laughs) And I'm kind of fine with it because it makes him a little bit more like wishy-washy or like kind of like squishy of like, How much power does he have? How evil is he? Oh, he's super fucking evil.
2: Right. Um, I also think that he might be a reference to the city corruption in Los Angeles at the time. Um, If you've ever seen, for example, LA Confidential, um, that movie deals with a lot of police corruption and a lot of city hall corruption. Uh, And don't remember anything in particular about like a very sinister extrajudicial killing style judge but there probably is uh and there were definitely like squads of kind of independent police that would go around and harass people or bust up things or um you know shake down it was businesses like McCarthyism for the,
1: or something like that
2: it was it it wasn't for the same aims as mccarthyism and it was a little bit before. It was pretty much a straight-up, like, economic corruption at the time. Um, and the the basically the police were the muscle for various people's, various, like, city councilmen's economic interests. Uh, there was, like, the L.A. city government was specifically known for being corrupt at the time. So I – and that is also a big theme in a lot of film noir is, you know, police corruption and um, – city government corruption so it's possible that judge doom is supposed to be like a reference to that uh otherwise like i agree with brian he's much more terrifying when it's like an unspecific undefined evil you don't want to know too much about him um you always want to believe that he could do anything he can fly why not he's terrifying he's sometimes things are better when they're an unknown evil
1: Oh totally! And, and That's they, why I stop trying to explain Mike Myers. <laughs>
0: um, and, and they do such a good job, ex- like showing that and not saying it. With that scene um, right in the beginning, where the uh, where they come on, I'm forgetting his name, Acme's murder scene, mm-hmm. and he just shows up and he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, I got this tune here, and I'm just gonna kill him in front of all of these cops." I'm just going to show up and and murder a totally (laughs) innocent shoe. That's clearly begging for its life. And no one is going to bat an eye at me.
2: Absolutely. I am
0: insanely evil and I'm untouchable.
2: Yeah. Yes. Uh, It's yeah. It sets him up really well. And they even have him, you know, violating the laws of physics, even before he like throws off his human mantle. Um, You know, he'll appear magically behind characters Or, Mm -hmm. you know, he'll, like, enter with a gust of wind. Uh, And so even in his human form, he has sort of supernatural physics happening around him. And that's, like, good. You know, you're meant to fear him more than just an average person.
0: And then just the casting of Christopher Lloyd, it was just so fucking genius.
1: (laughs) The entirety of my youth, I did not understand that the doc... Dr. Judge Doom, Fester, and the dude from Camp Nowhere were all the same guy. <laughs> like, I did not know that till I was like older. And I went, oh, hey, wow. He's an amazing actor.
0: See, I saw a lot of these things because my dad was a fan of him from Taxi.
1: Oh, yeah? My dad yeah.
0: loved him so much on the show Taxi that whenever he's in a kid's show thing, th- I had to watch that thing.
1: Hmm. He's a He's a joy.
0: He really is. <laughs>
1: It's true. Yeah. Not
0: in this movie. He's really not joyful at all no. in this movie. But not, he he's a hell of a talented guy.
1: And he's looked the same age for like 40 years. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and he really commits to the part. He chews the scenery with such sincerity. You couldn't have someone play that part, but kind of like smirk it, you know, or be a little corny or like not really fully believe in the character. He is all the way in on being Judge Doom. <laughs> you know, he can say that name with a straight face and it would not do the movie justice. If he tried to like, ironically play judge Jim, it would be just, it would not work, but he really, he commits to it. He sells it. He does it. It's great.
0: Oh yeah. It's when I was a kid, he was my least favorite part of the movie because when he took off the, his eyes at the end of the movie, his eyes got knocked out or whatever happened there. When his red eyes came out,
1: Mm -hmm. he freaked
0: the hell out of me. Um, But as I got older, he slowly became like my favorite thing in the movie who wasn't Roger Rabbit. I
1: always liked the weasels, but I have an affinity for small furry animals, even if they're evil. Mm -hmm. I get it.
0: I get it. Um, So one of the things I wanted to talk about while I have both of you on, um, is a lot of things we didn't talk about in Venture Brothers, even though we probably could have, was just kind of the design of everything. Um, We talked a lot about the characters and the story and whatnot, but I have two people who work in production design and a movie that features quite a bit of it. I wondered what you had to say about it.
1: Yes. Um. I like how Art Deco is definitely there, but it's not like blasting in your face with gold embellishments that some people like to do with it. It's more subdued. I particularly like, what is Maroonie? Is that his, I forgot his name. Maroon. Maroon. I love his office. I love that it's round. I love all the posters and the statues all around it. The little Art Deco pieces of furniture. It's not overly decorated. I just mm-hmm. always think that was great.
2: Mm-hmm. The scalloped wall treatment in there is insane. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's. I don't um, know what that means. <laughs> the walls, the walls are like shaped like waves, kind of. Like if you look at the walls, the walls aren't flat. They have a um, like a ripple texture to them in a very like art deco seashell sort of shape. Um, And Chewie is right. There's a wide variety of environments in this movie and not all of them are trying to be glamorous. A lot of them are super realistic. Um, This isn't like The Great Gatsby where they're just trying to make everything look beautiful and fancy. You know, like I've been saying it's a film noir so it deals with some serious dark issues and um, it all feels very 1940s but in a, you know, slightly more realistic, concrete way that it's not just, you know, glitz and glamour, uh, Charleston-ing and hooch and whatever. Um, or, you know, some weird World War II musical, you know, clean version of the forties. It's, it's a little bit grimier, more realistic version of the forties.
1: Very much so. Like, even I liked the design of the bar I love the bar the bar is great um,
0: I want to drink that bar
1: <laughs> Those are always the two sets that that set come out the most for me uh, valiance uh office just looks like I mean like a classic film noir set that one didn't really pop out to me too much No
0: the bar does like the bar sticks yeah. with me
2: Can I talk about the filming locations? Can I talk about them please? I'm oh, so yeah, excited yeah. to <laughs>
1: <laughs> Especially when it's you're saying that most of it happened in England, like how much of it was actually in LA?
2: So um, most of the exteriors were in LA. Um, most of the interiors were built on a stage in England. Um, some of the exteriors actually still exist, and you can go see them. Um, for example, the Valiant and Valiant Detective Agency office uh, is on. Hope Street in downtown Los Angeles, uh, just south of 11th Street. It's like 1142 South Hope, if I recall correctly. Almost all of the other buildings uh, on that side of the street have been demolished. um, And a few of them on the opposite side of the street still remain. Uh, Little single-story stores and whatever. But that like maybe four-story apartment building with the entrance, and it's got this really distinctive... Uh, zigzag uh, overhang up at the top where it looks like teeth as soon as you see it you'll recognize it Um, and so that building is still there and you can go visit it which is super cool Um, Hmm. and that's like you know in this time when we're all trapped inside uh, I think that it's (laughs) neat that you can watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit and if you are a listener or a viewer who lives in Los Angeles you can get to see a little part of your city. Um, another one is uh, the bar, of course, near the Red Car Terminal. I think it's called the Red Car Bar in the movie. Um, it's not filmed at Kohl's, but it's very clearly meant to be Coles Pacific Electric Buffet on 6th and Main. Um, and that still exists, of course. Uh, it's one of the longest continuously operating restaurants in Los Angeles. It's existed since the early 1900s, <clears throat> and I've never claims- been
0: there, and I've lived here for like almost a decade. <laughs> I
1: hope they've updated their kitchen.
2: <laughs> it's also uh, it's in like a lifelong rivalry with Philippe's as to which of those restaurants created the French dip, uh, and it is in a building that was the former Pacific Electric Terminal Building. It's now the Pacific Electric Lofts, and you can live there. But if you're walking along the sidewalk, you'll notice these enormous, like, foot-tall brass letters embedded in the pavement that say Danger. And if you look up into the side, you'll see the entrance to the parking garage for that building. And that's because that garage used to be the garage for the red car trains. Um, You can even see a few remnants of the rails. uh, And... That building is so cavernous on the ground floor because that's used to, that literally used to be where they housed red cars. Uh, and then if you go around that corner and you go down some steps as opposed to in the movie, go up some steps. Um, then you get into Kohl's, which is an adorable little bar. It's designed exactly like the red car bar in Who from Drudge Rabbit. It's got a big Art Nouveau mural behind the bar. It's got these big dark wood arches. They make an excellent Moscow mule. um, Hmm. And they're, much as in the movie, uh, there used to be a speakeasy in the back. And they've since reopened it as one of those, like, sanctioned speakeasies, like a secret bar called The Varnish, which is a little piano bar. Um, But you can, you know, once we can go to restaurants again, uh, you can go to Kohl's (laughs) and you can see... The place that Dolores's bar is based on Uh, and it's super cute and they'll show you the old uh, menus that were, you know, meant as, um, you know, like cafeteria lunches or quick lunches for working people who would, you know, get on the streetcar and eat and then go to work downtown. Um, And it's a great example of something from that era that still physically exists in Los Angeles.
1: Which doesn't happen very often. No. Los Angeles is known for tearing things down for the new and flashy.
2: Absolutely. But there's certain places, you know, where um, in the 1940s are an era where we still have a little bit of that kicking around. Uh, And so there are still places where you can see some history. I'm an enormous Los Angeles history nerd. So I love picking out those things. You know, you can go still see... The subway terminal building or, you know, like the city hall that appears in Dragnet is the same city hall. It's all the same one. Uh, even
1: <laughs> I've never seen anything Dragnet. i never watched the movie, never watched the show. Was it's a a, it just two shows. It's
2: a delight. It's a uh, it's yeah. very, very old timey. Um, there's also a freeway overpass that modern viewers will recognize. uh As Eddie and Roger are in Benny fleeing the weasels, um, after they come out of the alley, you know, where Benny pops up on his Extendo wheels and jumps over the weasels, uh, they like crash through a barrier and they end up on a freeway overpass. And that freeway overpass is the Hyperion Avenue overpass that goes over the LA River and onto the five freeway. There's kind of a hilarious section where there's like a shot, reverse shot, where in the background is downtown at like 11th Street. And then looking ahead of them is Glendale Hyperion Bridge, which is funny to people who live here because those two places are like five miles away. <laughs> it's, and That's it's. That's
0: almost not quite as bad as like, uh, what is it? The dawn of the Planet of the Apes, or the first the rise of the Planet of the Apes, where oh, yeah, Los Angeles the the Red Redwood, Redwood Forest, Forest are the same place. The Redwood Forest are at the other end of the Golden Gate Bridge.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, <laughs> You're just immediately They're there. They're definitely not
0: like hours away.
1: Yeah. The big ones, at least. Uh, I had that same feeling towards the when he's about to enter Toontown and you look, he stops and you look at the tunnel entrance. It felt like that was two separate locations to me, depending on which way you were looking, but I didn't know if that actually was or not.
0: Well, yeah, there's the real world, and then there's Toontown the oh, other side. You know what
1: I'm talking about. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, obviously. Um, <laughs> that particular tunnel is the Mount Hollywood Drive entrance to Griffith Park. Um, and that tunnel still exists. I don't... Oh, the reverse shot looks weird because there's a house right on that corner. Um, and I think that house is still there. But hmm. it, it looks like a completely different area. Um, but I think that's just because the house is, it's a very, very, very fancy part of uh, Hollywood, kind of Los Feliz, like North Los Feliz area. There's a real fancy, like 1940s style um, Tudor revival house on that corner. And that's then it just it, yeah. immediately goes into the hills because they're way up in the hills at that point. It's up by like Franklin Canyon Park and um, the part of the Hollywood Hills that's called Mount Olympus. Very dramatically. So that's where
0: some very dramatically,
1: very, very fancy really, houses are. Very affordable place.
0: Hollywood Hills, and they call it Mount Olympus.
2: Yeah,
1: Good yeah God. exactly.
0: <laughs> no pun intended.
1: Exactly.
2: Um, as far as I can tell, unfortunately, the building that uh, houses the red car terminal in the movie, it looks like it's on Hope Street for real. But that building has been torn down and replaced with a parking garage. Uh, you can see some of the other still existing buildings like there's one right on the corner. Um with like, a diagonal entrance, and those are still there. Because there's a whole that whole chase scene takes place pretty much right outside Eddie Valiant's office, and then the red car terminal is right across the street. But unfortunately, the building that the red car terminal was in has been torn down since then. Which is a shame, because it's mm. a real beaut when you see it in the movie. Yeah. That is a bummer. That's true. Oh, but you can and also very... uh, still go and see... Again, once we're allowed to go see things again, um, <laughs> the exterior for the Maroon Cartoons studio lot, because the Maroon Studios lot uh, is on Cahuenga and it is it's now Red called Studios, Red right? Studios. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, if- I worked there for a little bit early on. So every time I'd be like, wow, that looks exactly like the staircase I used to go up. It is. Yeah,
2: that's awesome. So, you know, you were just going up the the stairs to RK Maroon's office. That's great. That's where they shot uh, the Golden Girls. And uh, it was briefly um, Lucille Ball's studio and a whole lot of early. Oh, and it was also where they shot the Richard Simmons Sweatin' to the Oldies videos. At Mm. that studio.
0: Ooh. Now you have my attention.
1: (laughs) I know when I, when I was working there, it was on pre-pro for Man From U.N.C.L.E. while Steven Soderbergh was still going to be directing that.
2: Oh, that's great. Oh, uh, yeah. And then yeah. that didn't happen.
1: So that did not happen. <laughs> we stopped working Then there.
0: Guy Ritchie made that movie. <laughs> <laughs> didn't he? It was Guy Ritchie. Yeah, right? it was Guy Ritchie yeah. that
1: ended up doing it.
0: Uh, all right, I think we, we've rounded as much as we can say about Roger Rabbit. Is there uh, any other final things that we, we didn't mention that you would love to to squeak in there before we wrap things up? I think we mentioned everything that I I really love about this movie. We didn't talk about the opening cartoon at all, which I I should just mention is fantastic and I love it. And if that was a real cartoon, I would have watched it all the time. Um, (laughs) But that's all I really have to say about that. So is there anything else that we missed that you want to mention?
2: Oh, I had another location note too. Speaking of this movie being an homage to classic Hollywood, uh, I uh, discovered that the... um, I think that the Ink and Paint Club is loosely based on uh, the Stage Door Canteen, which was in a movie called I think Stage Door Canteen, and it was one of those corny like World War II musicals uh, about a USO club. But that was the first time that the song "Why Don't You Do Right" appears on screen, and that song is very like post-depression too. The song was originally recorded in the '30s. And it's very clearly about a dude like losing all of his money in the Depression. Um, but that song is sung in the movie Stage Door Canteen. And it has the, the, the location, the Stage Door Canteen, has the same layout as the Ink and Paint Club. It has that concentric, like lowering seating where you walk in and you're actually on an upper floor. And then you go down several levels to the seating. And then there's a stage on the very lowest level. Uh, it also feels like a place that would be you know, a remnant from Prohibition. Like, it's clearly done in 20s, 30s Art Deco style. It might have been a speakeas at some point. You enter from the alley, you know, even now that it's not Prohibition anymore. So it also kind of lends to, like, the reference of all 40s movies of of Prohibition and of the 20s being a very recent memory that there's references in the production design to Prohibition having just happened. There's still physical reminders of it around, like hooch rooms, like speakeasies, like 1920s architecture that's still there because no one's built a building since then. Um, And, you know, just generally the design of the Ink and Paint Club is absolutely gorgeous. The huge geometric sunburst on that stage curtain is amazing.
1: Yeah, when we were watching it, I was reminiscing to Brian about it. Like, I've never been to a club like that. I want to go to a club like that. Where, like, <laughs> all the seating is to, uh, layered like a movie theater.
2: Absolutely. In the movie, The Stage Door Canteen, the club in question is a basement club underneath a bigger theater. So it's, mm. I that's why I think that they're pulling their set design from the Stage Door Canteen because we don't have basements here. This is Los Angeles. Um, yeah, basement exist here. The Ink and Paint Club is clearly a basement, uh, and it uh, it has the exact same feel if you watch that scene in the movie. And given that all of Who Framed Roger Rabbit is like an homage to old Hollywood, um, I think that the the layout of that space and the use of that song um, definitely makes me think it's a reference to it.
1: That
0: makes sense oh, yeah. um okay so i'd say that's pretty much everything for who framed roger rabbit uh let's move into plugs and then we can say goodbye i'll go first very quickly uh be sure to check out athpod.com for this show and all the other shows on our network um they're all great and we're all still going throughout quarantine because what else are we gonna do <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then whenever quarantine eventually ends, then this show will then turn into um, Welcome to You Are Doom, which is our new Frisky Dingo show. But that's a little ways mm-hmm. down the line until this quarantine's over and I can actually think about things from a critical standpoint and not just, oh, I like that, like I've been doing with
1: this. You really need to think about that, car- that
0: there animated
1: is m- show so much to think critically. about
0: in Frisky Dingo. <laughs> it's a very important show to everyone who's ever seen it. Shh. Makes sense to me. Anyhow, uh, Cherry, what are you plugging?
1: Uh, Superstore. Let's keep plugging Superstore.
0: Uh, Ray, what about you?
1: Um, I am...
2: Uh, well, as soon as we all get back to work, there's going to be a new season of the na- 90s television classic Supermarket Sweep game show. And that's what I was working on before we all got laid off. So... Uh-huh. Look forward to that. Leslie Jones is going to host it, and she's always a delight. Um, It's We were talking about
1: Leslie Jones the other day. Great. Going like, we need to see more of her.
2: That is what she was planning on doing before we all couldn't go to work anymore, was uh, making our show. Um, So as soon as we're all allowed to go back to work, we're going to make a new season of Supermarket Sweep, and it's going to be really funny because Leslie Jones is on it. So... That will be a delight.
1: I look forward cool. to
0: that. I look forward to watching. I don't watch yeah. Leslie Jones in anything.
1: Yeah, she's great. That's right. She's one of the reasons why I enjoy the Ghostbusters movie.
0: She's fantastic. Yeah. She's my favorite line in that movie. <laughs> uh, she's great. Uh, Chewie and Ray, thank you so much Aww. for jumping on. This was a lot of fun.
2: You're welcome. Absolutely.
0: And uh, next week, we are planning on doing... I've already forgotten the name of the fucking movie. Uh, Listen to last week's episode with uh, Jeff, and we might be doing that movie that he mentioned if it's still available on YouTube. It's supposedly a really cool, heavy metal-esque, but more about cheap trick style movie. I don't
1: know what you're talking about. I'm into it. I don't think you talked to me
0: about it. No, I don't think I really mentioned much because Jeff pitched it to me. I'm like, I don't want to know anything else. Like, I already kind of stopped listening. I just want to watch it and then record an episode on it. And I think that's going to be the best way to do it. And hopefully that's what we're doing next week, as long as I can get his schedule to line up with ours
1: again. Which, who knows? I wouldn't mind to actually watch Heavy Metal, because I've never actually seen it.
0: It's a trip, man. (laughs) It's a trip. Okay, so... Bye. Bye. Bye?
2: Bye, guys. Thanks so much.